Hi, we are the University of New Mexico IM Chiefs. Welcome to Lamar. Nothing to do with your medication list. And everything to do with the morning after afternoon report. Where we talk about the clinical pearls in afternoon report format. All right, welcome back to Studio 5CC. Today we are going to bring you another awesome episode. This is Chiwei. Lloyd Petty. This is Sharky. Awesome. Lloyd, what kind of case is on the docket today? Today we have a case on when is too much Tums too much. So I'll just jump right into the case. Um, this is a 72-year-old patient who two weeks ago began to feel shaky with generalized fatigue. Then approximately five days uh, before uh, his arrival to the hospital had began having falls, around four to five falls. The patient endorsed lightheadedness. Uh, but denied having any syncopal events that they recalled. The patient denied having chest pain, shortness of breath, headache, fever, chills, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, or constipation. The patient manages their own medications at home. Uh, the home medications include Losartan, 50 milligrams, uh, metformin, genuvia, glipizide, fluoxetine, trazodone, famotidine, pentoprazole, the patient had pantoprazole and famotidine on their medication list, but when we asked the patient if they were taking these medications, they got confused and said that they'd only been taking Tums instead of pantoprazole and famotidine. The patient has a past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, depression, and GERD with a hiatal hernia, uh, the history of Neeson fundo application, family history, uh, father had hypertension, Social history, the patient denied a history of smoking tobacco, alcohol, or illicit drug use. On evaluation, the vitals are normal. The patient is alert and oriented, but appears frail and is in no acute distress. Uh, the patient does have dry oral mucosa, but the rest of physical exam is normal. Loy, did the patient report any diarrhea? No, the patient said that they didn't have any diarrhea. Is the patient drinking enough water? Patients said that they drink around one to two liters of water a day. Sharky, do you have any questions? No, I think you covered it. Loy, why don't you tell us about your lab workup and imaging? Okay. Uh, so the complete blood count was normal. The basic metabolic panel had a low sodium, potassium, and an elevated calcium and creatinine and glucose. So the calcium was 13.6, the creatinine was 2.8, and glucose was 260. Uh, and then we also checked the LFTs, and those looked like they were normal. Albumin was 4. Any other questions on labs? Uh, no questions. Can you tell us about the imaging? Uh, because the patient was complaining of having falls, they got a CT scan of the head, which showed no acute intracranial abnormalities. Did you get any other laboratories uh, to confirm that calcium? Of course. Uh, we checked. Uh, we also checked ionized calcium, which was elevated at 1.5. Uh, we checked an EKG, which had a normal sinus rhythm with no ST segment changes. And then we checked uh, PTH, which was 12 and was low. So this ended up confirming our suspicion of milk alkali syndrome. 
um, because PTH was suppressed and the calcium was elevated in the setting of this patient who was taking a lot of Tums. All right, and one of my favorite subjects in med school was calcium physiology, and I'm glad that we have an expert right here on calcium. Dr. Sharkey, why don't you tell us a little bit about the physiology of calcium? Sure. Calcium is regulated by both vitamin D and parathyroid hormone, or PTH. The biggest thing to recognize is that patients can have pseudo-hypocalcemia or pseudo-hyperkalcemia. In patients with pseudo-hypocalcemia, their iCal is normal, but their albumin and total calcium are both low. In pseudo-hyperkalcemia, their iCal is normal also, but their albumin and total calcium are both high. Pseudo-hyperkalcemia can occur in patients with hyperalbuminemia, such as those that are severely dehydrated, and patients with paraprotein binding capabilities for calcium, such as multiple myeloma. The presence of these extra proteins give you a falsely elevated total calcium, but the ionized calcium will remain normal. Lloyd, can you tell us the difference between ergocalciferol and cholecalciferol? I oftentimes have to order the vitamin D supplements for the patients in clinic. Okay, so vitamin D3, which is cholecalciferol, is a preferred supplemental option, and it's the one that we typically prescribe to people whenever they're taking it. The only caveat is that the ergocalciferol may be prescribed if patients have very... Uh, low vitamin D levels. And the reason why we tend to prefer vitamin D3 or cholecalciferol is because it has a longer half-life and it's also more similar to our natural occurring vitamin D, which we produce. All right, so talking a little bit about vitamin D physiology, vitamin D is hydroxylated twice before it becomes active. First, it goes to the liver where it's converted from vitamin D to calcidiol, and then it goes to the kidney, where it's converted from calcidiol to calcitriol. So, Lloyd, why do we screen for 25-hydroxyvitamin D, the calcidiol, instead of 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, the calcitriol? That's a very good question, Chi Wei. So, calcidiol has a longer half-life and is the best indicator of whole vitamin D status in the blood levels. And talking a little bit more about vitamin D, remember, active vitamin D acts on three organ systems, the bone, the intestines, and the kidney. And with adequate vitamin D levels, bone reabsorption is increased, intestinal uptake of dietary calcium is increased, and excretory excretion of calcium through the kidney is decreased. Uh, now, parathyroid hormone increases the calcium in the blood by acting on the kidney to increase production of vitamin D and promotes calcium reabsorption in the distal convoluted tubule and loop of Henle and increases reabsorption in bones. Okay, and um, one of the questions that we typically get is whether... Uh, calcium can be abnormal because of vitamin D or because of parathyroid hormone. One thing that you can look at is phosphorus to help you differentiate between uh, those two etiologies. If a patient has elevated parathyroid hormone, the phosphorus is going to be low because it's going to be excreted through the kidneys. But if a patient has uh, elevated calcium because of vitamin D, the phosphorus will be elevated. Remember, folks, it's PTH, 
fast trashing hormone. Sharky, what are some of the symptoms that you can see with hypercalcemia? Well, Chile, at any degree of hypercalcemia, most classically, you will see polyuria, polydipsia, and nocturia. Less frequently, patients can have anorexia, nausea, abdominal pain, constipation, increased creatinine levels, and mild mental status changes. When their levels are severely elevated, like greater than 12, remember stones, bones, groans, and psychiatric undertones, and also cardiac arrhythmias. Those symptoms are most prominent then. Lloyd, what are some of the causes of hypercalcemia? Well, primary hyperparathyroidism and malignancy account for 90% of cases. Uh, when it comes to malignancy, uh, there's differences between the types of malignancy that we're talking about. In some cases, you can have femoral malignancies, which are the ones that secrete uh, like parathyroid-related peptide. And there's also other types of malignancies which can cause local osteolytic damage that can also increase your calcium levels. Shaki, how do we treat hypercalcemia? Excellent question. The goal in hypercalcemia is to increase calcium excretion and decrease bone resorption or intestinal calcium absorption. Additionally, volume repletion is important. In patients with hyperparathyroidism, consider parathyroidectomy if the patient's younger than 50 years old, their serum calcium level is at least one milligram per deciliter above the limit of normal, their T-score is less than negative 2.5 at the lumbar spine, total hip, femoral neck, or distal radius, or in patients whom medical surveillance is not possible or is not desired. If they have any of these, they have a high potential benefit from surgery. When should the hypercalcemic patient be hospitalized? They should be hospitalized if they have mental status changes, acute kidney injury, or a calcium level greater than 12. Once they're hospitalized, there's a few things you can do to treat them. Number one is aggressive IV fluid resuscitation. Additionally, you can give them an IV loop diuretic if they are volume overloaded. Calcitonin helps to decrease levels by interfering with osteoclast function and to increase the excretion of calcium. IV bisphosphonates are also very helpful, especially in patients with active malignancy. If a patient is resistant or unable to tolerate bisphosphonates, denosumab can also be used. In patients that have severely, severely elevated calcium levels of greater than 18 with neurosymptoms or compromised renal function, they can be placed on hemodialysis to lower calcium levels. And most importantly, treat the underlying cause. So, Loy, what happened to this patient at the end? She was treated by giving her a lot of fluids. At a 200 cc per hour rate, her calcium was trended until it came back to normal. Uh, the patient was diagnosed uh, with milk alkali syndrome because of her history and the low PTH, which confirmed our suspicion that the calcium was elevated and the PTH was responding appropriately to that elevation in calcium. In the end, her calcium came back to normal, and her AKI resolved, and she didn't need hemodialysis. And then she was also told to stop taking Tums, and the patient was discharged to a skilled nursing facility. All right, folks, I think that did it for us today. Uh, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. See you later. Sharky out. This episode was brought to you by... Lloyd. Chiwei. Sharky. Taraja. And Reed. We hope you enjoyed it and take home some clinical pearls.